the Madhandriya Sutta. And this Sutta begins when the Buddha has a meeting with this wanderer named Madhandriya. And Madhandriya seems to be from the Sutta. The Sutta doesn't actually identify what sect or what school of thought he was following, but he seemed to be a life affirmer, one who believed that one should indulge the senses and enjoy the pleasures of the senses. And for this reason, he regarded the Buddha as what he called a Buhano, which is translated as a destroyer of growth, like somebody who's against progress, somebody with a bleak, negative, bleak, negative, dark, pessimistic view of life. And so when the Buddha meets him, then the Buddha questions him about the reason why he is calling him a destroyer of growth. And he says, is it because I teach the restraint of the senses, the control of the senses, the mastery of the senses? And then the wanderer Magandhya agrees and says, that is the reason. And now the Buddha's dialogue with Magandhya will unfold in two main parts, two main sections. In the first section of the sutta, which we mostly covered last time, the aim of the Buddha is to challenge kamatanha, the craving for sense pleasures. And he does this by exposing the adhinava, that is the danger, the unsatisfactoriness, or the misery in sensual pleasure. In the second part of the sutta, the Buddha will examine the second type of craving. This is bhavatanha, the craving for becoming, the craving for existence. And we saw last time that the Buddha, when he undertakes his examination of sense pleasures, he uses this <laughs> incredibly impressive simile of the leper. In several forms he uses a simile, the one that we had come to last time. This is in paragraph 15 of the Sutta where the leper has been cauterizing his body over a burning charcoal pit. And this is the way he gets some relief from the pain and he experiences a certain kind of pleasure and enjoyment from heating his body up over this burning charcoal pit. Then his friends and companions and relatives bring a physician to treat him. And the physician prepares some medicine and they applies the medicine and it cures the man of his leprosy so that he's well and happy and strong and he's able to do whatever he wants. He's now completely ma complete master of himself. Okay, then two strong men grab him by both arms and pull him towards that burning charcoal pit. And so the man would now twist his body and wiggle and struggle in order to break free from those two men who are pulling him to the charcoal pit. And the reason why, Bhagandi admits, is because the fire is painful to the touch, hot and scorching. Okay, and then the Buddha asks a really pointed question. He says, is it only now that the fire is painful to the touch? Or was it also earlier painful to the touch? And Magandhya admits that even earlier the fire was burning, it was burning and painful to the touch. But he says, the man, the leper, 
because of his leprosy, his sense faculties were impaired. That is, there was some kind of disturbance or distortion in his perceptions, his sense perception. And so even though the fire was hot and burning, because of his dis- disturbance in the sense faculties, impairment of the sense faculties, he mistakenly perceived it as pleasant. Okay, so when Magandhya admits that, then the Buddha applies the same principle to sensual pleasure. He says, even earlier, whether in the past, the future, or the present, the sense pleasures are always burning, hot and scorching. But it's because ordinary, unenlightened living beings have some kind of impairment in their faculties. Not actually in the sense faculties, but in what we call the panyindriya, the faculty of wisdom, the faculty of understanding. Because they have this impairment in their sense faculties, they mistakenly perceive these burning and hot sense pleasures as being pleasurable, as being enjoyable. And so, the actual terminology that is used in the suttas, it connects, the, the terminology connects this passage with one of the Buddha's standard teachings on what is called the four vipalasas. In some suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha speaks about these four vipalasas which means literally it's a, let's say a perversion or a distortion or turning upside down of the correct understanding of them. And these distortions or perversions operate at three levels. The most basic and fundamental level is sanya which means perception. Then once the perception is infiltrated by these distortions, then it affects the chitta, the mind, or the way of thinking. You say a conception, conceptualization. Then once the conception or thinking is distorted, then it leads to a distorted, upside-down view. This is one grasps hold of one's idea and one asserts that this is the correct view, this is the correct understanding. And of these four distortions, the one that is relevant here is the second. Seeing or perceiving pleasure in what is really unpleasurable or painful. Not that the sense pleasure causes actual painful feelings, but the very act of indulging in sensual pleasures, enjoying the sensual pleasures, even though it's pleasant at the time one is indulging in it, but it burns up the mind, it inflames the mind. And it also involves a lot of anxiety and clinging and tension and then there comes a holding and clinging a refusal to let go and then when one is separated from the sense pleasure deprived of it then it causes sorrow, misery, pain even despair so that's why when the Buddha is discussing or or referring to the ordinary beings, he uses very, very powerful language to describe their indulgence in sense pleasure. He says, when these beings who are not free from sense pleasure, I'm sorry, the, these beings who are not free from the lust for sensual pleasures, who are devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, when it's actually eaten up by this craving, 
and one is burning with the fever of sensual pleasure, being consumed by a fire, burning, burnt up by a fire. So because of this craving and lust for sensual pleasures, that craving seeps through the mind and affects our way of perceiving, our way of thinking, and in extreme cases, our views. So that nowadays it's very common, in the time of the Buddha, (laughs) it was very common for people to have the belief in the Atman, the soul, the self. Nowadays, it's not so widespread. (laughs) People don't care whether or not they have a self or soul, maybe except for a few very religious Christians, Hindus, and so on. But now the dominant defilement in the minds of beings, not so much the view of self, but it's the craving for sensual pleasure. And so one has to have this, this unceasing multiplication of different objects of enjoyment, different ways to indulge one's desires. It's not enough just to have the ordinary sense objects, but all of industry and commerce has to manufacture unending supplies of different types of records, not only long playing now, then it becomes the cassettes, then it now with the compact disc, so you get everything at ultra-high fidelity. Then there's cinema, videos. Um, so all, so much of commerce and industry is dedicated just to multiplying sense objects, just so people can indulge the senses and enjoy sense pleasures. And then the whole advertising industry is directed to stimulating this distorted perception so that one has a perception of sense pleasures as enjoyable, as agreeable. So you see the advertisement for the cars, there's always a beautiful woman, nicely dressed, smiling (laughs) to promote the cars. Photocopy machines even, the computers, always (laughs) some kind of sensual enticement is introduced. And then this obsession with sense pleasures sinks even deeper until it becomes fortified in the form of a view so that people adopt the wrong view that there's no point in living a life of simplicity and contentment if somebody lives restrained. They're regarded as just um, wasting their life. They're throwing away this unique opportunity to enjoy as many pleasures as possible. And so in this way, this attachment to sense pleasures, this commitment to sensual pleasures becomes fortified and reinforced by assuming the view, the distorted view, that there's no harm in the indulgence in sense pleasures. The aim of life is to enjoy as much as possible, to enjoy intensity of sense pleasures, to enjoy multiplicity of sense pleasures. So it's not enough just to surround oneself by a few sensual pleasures that one can repeatedly indulge in, but one has to enjoy as great a variety as possible. Even perhaps there are scientists in secret laboratories who are trying to devise a sixth sense and maybe a seventh sense (laughs) for the future, for the 21st century, since we've already had (laughs) so many, not only 20 centuries, but since humankind appeared on Earth, there have been only five senses (laughs) to indulge. So we should create a sixth sense, a seventh sense, eight, ninth senses, so we can have new sense faculties to enjoy new sense pleasures. 
Okay, so now we continue with, with the sutta. And now in paragraph 17, the Buddha will introduce another adinava or danger in sense pleasures. Again, using the simile of the leper as his basis. Okay, suppose there was a leper with sores and blisters and so on, cauterizing his body over a burning charcoal pit. Okay, the more he scratches the scabs and cauterizes his body, the fouler, the more evil-smelling and more infected the openings of his wounds would become. And yet he would find a certain measure of satisfaction and enjoyment in scratching his wounds. And so the Buddha says, in the same way, beings who are not free from lust or sensual pleasures and so on, still indulge in sensual pleasures. And the more they indulge in sensual pleasures, the more their craving for sensual pleasures increases and the more they are burnt by that, their fever for sensual pleasures. Yet they find a certain measure of satisfaction and enjoyment depending on the five orbs of sensual pleasure. Here the Buddha is pointing out a very, very important psychological fact about the indulgence in desire. That it seems that when desire arises in the mind, <laughs> just if we're left to our ordinary wisdom, we think the way to get rid of this desire is to indulge it. <laughs> when you indulge the desire, then the desire is removed. The discomfort in the mind, the itching, the obsession with the particular object is quenched and one's concern with that enjoyment is allayed. So one feels some relief and the pleasure arises through the satisfaction of that desire. That's just a basic, very, very simple psychological fact in the ordinary human pattern of desire and of satisfaction. When you satisfy the desire, you experience. First, when the desire arises, then there's discontent, dissatisfaction, a kind of restlessness, and the drive to obtain the object that one wants. Then, when one obtains that object, when one indulges the desire, then the desire subsides and the mind experiences some pleasure, some satisfaction, and one is content. But that satisfaction or contentment is just temporary, just transient. It's a little bit like if you have a burning fire, and then you want to put out the fire to extinguish it, and you take a heap of sawdust, paper and dry paper, you throw it onto the fire, then the flames of the fire subside <laughs> and it seems like the fire is about to go out. But then what happens? The flame catches on to the paper, catches on to the sawdust or the wood chips, and then the fire starts burning up even more fiercely than before. And so in the Buddha's understanding of the mind, the same thing happens with sensual desire. When one doesn't see the unsatisfactoriness, the danger in it, one just lives looking for enjoyment, for satisfaction and sense pleasure. So then one indulges the sensual desire and the desire is allayed. But the desire is smoldering in the mind and it catches on to one's memories, one's fantasies, and it springs up again, burning even more intensely, more fiercely than in the past. And that is exactly why the round of samsara is so difficult to break out of. 
because the basic drive of the human mind, at least one of the basic drives of the human mind, is this kamatanha, the craving for sensual pleasure. And so through that sensual pleasure, one is driven to indulge the craving. One indulges it, experiences some relief, but the craving springs up again, latching onto new objects, seeking new avenues of enjoyment, and one is just tangled ever more and more tightly within this net of tanha. That's why in some places and verses the Buddha speaks of craving as jalani, which means the entanglement. It's like a net which tangles all the six sense faculties. Okay, then the Buddha continues the examination of sense pleasures by asking Magandhya whether he has ever seen or heard of a king or a king's minister. In the time of the Buddha, kings would be always the most powerful people in the country with the greatest wealth, and they could indulge in all the sensual desires of the mind. If not the king, then the king's ministers, they would be in the second most favored position. And so uh, ordinary people would be content with one wife, one husband. The kings would always have harems. <laughs> and also their ministers might have several wives. And the king would have limitless wealth, control over all the wealth in the kingdom. And so they can just indulge whatever desires they want. So he asked Magandhya whether he has ever seen a king or a king's minister who, without abandoning the craving for sensual pleasures, without removing the fever for sensual pleasures, has been able to abide free from thirst with a mind inwardly at peace. And Magandhya says, no. And then the Buddha, after confirming this, he goes on to point out who are the ones who are able to abide free from thirst with the mind inwardly at peace. And he says that it is those ascetics or Brahmins who have understood as they really are the origin, the origin and disappearance the gratification, the danger, and the escape from sense pleasure. And it is after abandoning the craving for sense pleasures and removing the fever for sensual pleasures that they are able to abide free from thirst with a mind inwardly at peace. So the only ones who are really able to dwell with a completely peaceful mind, free from this itch and thirst of sensual desire, are those who, through wisdom, through right understanding, have understood first the origin and disappearance, that is the arising and passing away, the impermanence of sensual pleasures and then who have understood the gratification, the enjoyment in sense pleasure. That there really is a type of enjoyment, a type of satisfaction in sense pleasure. But there is also the danger in sense pleasure that has to be understood. And they also have to understand the escape from sense pleasure. I explained these terms last time. In brief, here, these five terms are really just another way of stating the Four Noble Truths. Okay, so now, at this point in the Sutta, the Buddha has pretty much concluded his 
in examination or investigation of sensual pleasures and he's completed the first project of the sutta which is to show you say the need to eliminate karma tantra the craving for sensual for the craving for sensual pleasures okay now underlying the craving for sensual pleasures there is still another type of craving another type of desire and this is called bhavatana the craving for becoming the craving for existence this is the craving for which one remains attached to one's present personality one's set of five aggregates and this is the same craving that drives us on from life to life picking up and clinging to one set of the five aggregates after another and so even when one looks at these two types of cravings very closely one sees that even though the craving for sense pleasures is the more obvious type of craving the one which operates on the more superficial level of the mind but it is just in a way a manifestation or a cover-up for the deeper underlying craving which is the craving to go on existing the craving for continued becoming so it might take an example a man who's lying very gravely ill and always experiencing pain no chance for any kind of pleasure even his food doesn't he can't enjoy his food and he's in so much pain that he won't he play beautiful music he doesn't it's just like grating cacophonous sounds to his ears maybe he's almost blind <laughs> and always feeling pain with the body but you ask him <laughs> do you want to go on living? yes, yes <laughs> there's that very deep-rooted attachment to life <laughs> and so this is the deepest drive in the mind which it's even more fundamental than that craving for sensual pleasure and now the Buddha is going to sort of in a subtle way drag Magandhya into a discussion which will bring him to an examination of this craving for existence so the Buddha right after they come to the end of that first part of the discussion he utters this exclamation, this verse. He says, The greatest of all gains is wealth. Nibbana is the greatest bliss. The Eightfold Path is the best of paths, for it leads safely to the deathless. And then when he said this, then the wanderer Magandhya became excited and he said it's wonderful it's marvelous how beautiful that verse is and he recites only the first two lines and then he says we too have heard this from our own in our own tradition of teachings and it agrees with what you said master Bhutanam. and now it seems that the word Nibbana was not used at this time only by the Buddha but it was used by other schools of thought at least according to the Buddha scriptures and so the word Nibbana had the connotations, the sense of the highest type of happiness the complete perfect satisfaction it didn't necessarily mean liberation from samsara or the unconditioned element and so there were schools of thought that are mentioned by the Buddha in the Brahmajala Sutta which held even that the complete enjoyment of the five sense pleasures 
is Nibbana here and now. These would be the sensualists, the hedonists, who say that um, when a person is able to enjoy any forms he wants, any sounds he wants, any to enjoy any smells, tastes, or tactile objects, that is Nibbana right in this very life. <laughs> then there were other thinkers who explained Nibbana in terms of the jhanic states, or the arupa attainments, the formless meditation. And so there are many different schools of thought with different views about the nature of Nibbana. And so somehow this verse that was spoken by the Buddha got included in the scriptures of the school of thought to which this wanderer belonged. And so he agreed with what the Buddha was saying and he said that we have the same statement in our own text. But the Buddha doesn't <laughs> he doesn't congratulate Magandhya and say that we're now in perfect agreement with each other but he asked him what do you mean by this health? What do you mean by Nibbana? And Magandhya is still holding to his sensualist views and so he gets up and he rubs his limbs his body, he rubs his body with his hands and he must have been a very strong and healthy and vigorous person said, this is that health, Master Gautama. This is Nibbana, that I am healthy and happy and there's nothing troubling me, nothing afflicts me. So he thinks just being in good physical health, being able to enjoy oneself in any way, this is perfect health, this is Nibbana. Now the Buddha comes up with one of those, another <laughs> magnificent simile, which I think taking the leper simile and this other simile together in the sutta makes this sutta, I think, one of the finest or outstanding similes. He gives this simile of a man who's been blind for birth so that he's never seen any visible form. He cannot distinguish any colors. He could not see the sun, the moon, or the stars. Then some other man comes along, a man with ordinary good eyesight, and he praises a clean, white, beautiful cloth. He says a white cloth, beautiful, spotless, and clean, is excellent indeed. <laughs> and so when the man who's blind from birth hears <laughs> the other man praising the clean white cloth, then he wants to get a clean white cloth for himself. And then the other man tricks him and cheats him by selling him a dirty, <laughs> soiled smock and that he tells him, here, my good man, <laughs> this is a clean white cloth. You put this on and wear it, and you can deposit a thousand, ten thousand rupees <laughs> in my bank account. <laughs> okay, so the blind man accepts the cloth. He's very pleased and he's ecstatic that he's gotten the clean white cloth and he pays the money to the man with sight and he puts it on he puts on this dirty, soiled, oily, filthy smock and he goes around telling everybody he says, good indeed folks, 
is this clean, white, beautiful, stainless cloth. <laughs> but when this blind man accepted the cloth from the man with sight, he did so because he was blind and didn't have vision. He couldn't see the cloth as it really is. And he just accepted the cloth out of blind faith in the man with good sight, the cloth salesman. And so the Buddha says, in the same way as that man blind from birth, the wanderers of other sects are blind without correct vision. They do not know what is real health. They do not see real Nibbana. But they go around uttering the statement that Nibbana is the greatest bliss. And then the Buddha says that this stanza, the full four-line stanza, originated amongst the Buddhas of the past and somehow it spread through the generations, over the centuries, down to the ordinary people and then it got incorporated by the wanderers into their scriptures. the Buddha is going to show his, his own understanding of Nibbana and his own evaluation of the view of this wanderer Magandhya. Okay, this is now we're on paragraph 21 at the bottom. He says, although this body is a disease, a tumor, a dark, a calamity, and an affliction. Referring to this body, you say, this is that health, this is that Nibbana. You do not have that noble vision, Magandhya, by means of which you might know health and see Nibbana. So Magandhya is taking this healthy body to be, this health of the body, to be Nibbana. This is like the, the man who's blind from birth is taking the white cloth and saying, this uh, is taking this dirty, soiled, filthy smock and saying that this is a clean white cloth. And the reason why he's making this mistake, the blind man, is because he's blind from birth. He's never seen a real clean white cloth before. And so Magandhya and all of his teachers have never had any insight into the real nature of Nibbana. They've been blind from birth, blind from beginningless time. And because of their blindness, they hold up this body not only the body, but these five aggregates. And they say that when this body and the other aggregates are healthy and experiencing pleasure, that is true health, that is Nibbana. And somehow when the Buddha says that this body is a disease, an affliction, a tumor, he's Writes right down to some deep root of understanding in Magandhya and awakens a little, at least to some degree, some response of sadha or faith in Magandhya. So Magandhya now says, I have confidence that Master Gautama, or the Blessed One, is able to teach me the Dhamma in such a way that I might know what is true health, that I might see Nibbana. But now the Buddha 
is going to put him off. The Buddha isn't going to jump at this chance and say, now I'll start to teach you. Because this is one of the techniques of the Buddha is to test the sincerity of the disciple first by refusing the first request for a teaching. Not beginning right away, but declining this request to teach in order to sort of awaken at stronger levels the desire in the disciple to understand. And so the Buddha says first, he gives an example of that man blind from birth, and suppose that his friends and relatives called the physician, and the physician were to make some medicine for him with a lot of trouble and difficulty, procuring a lot of rare herbs, mixing them together, and he were to apply it to the man's eyes, and the man would not regain his vision then it would just be frustrating and disappointing for that physician. And so the Buddha says, if I were to teach you about true health, about Nibbana, and if you wouldn't understand, then that would just be wearisome and troublesome for me. But Magandhya is insistent and he requests even more and more intently. He says, again I have confidence in Master Gotama that you might teach me the Dhamma in such a way that I could know good health, that I might see Nibbana. Then the Buddha says, he repeats this whole simile about the man blind from birth who's cheated by this cloth salesman and he puts on this dirty soiled garment and goes about saying that this is a clean white cloth. Okay, then his friends and relatives call the physician. The physician prepares a medicine and applies the medicine to the man's eyes and this time the physician is successful. The blindness is dispelled and the man regains his vision. He looks around and says, it's wonderful, it's marvelous, I can see. <laughs> he looks up at the sun, he sees the sun, looks at the sky, looks around, he sees for the first time maybe his mother, his father, brothers and sisters, friends, and he's very happy and delighted. <laughs> then he thinks, and now I'll see that clean, white, beautiful cloth that I've been wearing. <laughs> and he looks down at his garment, and what does he see <laughs> but this filthy, soiled, dirty <laughs> smock that he's been wearing. And not only was he cheated by that man, but he's made a fool out of himself by going around <laughs> to everybody else saying, I'm wearing a beautiful clean white cloth. <laughs> okay, so now the Buddha says, together with, we're in paragraph 23, together with the arising of his vision, his desire and liking for that dirty, soiled garment would be abandoned. Then he might burn with indignation and enmity towards that man, the clothing salesman, who sold him that dirty, soiled smock. He will be furious with that man, and he would maybe even consider killing him. And he thinks to himself, Indeed, for a long time I have been tricked, cheated, and defrauded by that man with this dirty, soiled garment.
And so then the Buddha says, now he applies the simile, he says, in the same way, Magandhya, if I were to teach you the Dhammadas, this is that health, this is that Nibbana. Then you might know health, you might see Nibbana. Here, by seeing Nibbana, the Buddha would be referring to obtaining the Dhamma Chakku, the eye of the Dhamma, by which one sees the deathless element. One sees Nibbana, that would be the attainment of Sotapati. And together with the arising of your vision, your chandarada, your desire and lust, desire and attachment for these five aggregates of clinging might be abandoned. With the attainment of stream entry, the desire and lust is not fully abandoned, but it just drops away temporarily because one sees into the nature of the unconditioned and at the same time that one sees that then the craving and the attachment, the clinging to the five aggregates is abandoned. And then you might think indeed I have been tricked, cheated and defrauded Our own mind is like the garment salesman. The garment salesman sells the blind man a, a dirty, filthy smock, telling him this is a clean, beautiful, clear white cloth. And so our own mind is, <laughs> in a sense, it's always selling us <laughs> at each moment, at each with each existence. It's selling us these Panchupadana Kanda, these five aggregates subject to clinging. And it's telling us, my good man, this is yourself. This is what you truly are. These aggregates are permanent, pleasurable. They are yourself. They are attractive and beautiful. You should accept them, hold to them, maintain them, support them and don't let go since this is the clean white floor and so one goes on thinking of all the five aggregates the form the body this is mine this is i this is myself the feelings perception the mental formations consciousness one is thinking this is mine this is i this is myself. And so the chandaraga, desire and attachment set in to these five aggregates. Then when one realizes the truth of the Dhamma, when one sees, truly sees Nibbana, the deathless element, then chandaraga, desire and lust fall away and one also understands, fully understands, the nature of the five aggregates. And so the Buddha then continues the passage, he says, Indeed, I have long been tricked, cheated and defrauded by this mind. For when clinging, I have been clinging just to rupa, just to material form. I have been clinging just to feeling. I have been clinging just to perception. I have been clinging just to the mental formation. I have been clinging just to consciousness. So, apparently what is happening here is that with the 
intuition of Nibbana, the insight or realization of Nibbana, the Sakaya Ditti, that is the view of a self in regard to the five aggregates, breaks up and falls away. And so one sees that what one has been clinging to is not the clean white cloth that is the five aggregates taken as permanent, pleasurable and self, but just impermanent, selfless form, feeling, perception and so on, which are all dukkha, all subject to suffering. And so when one sees this, that's like the blind man who is seeing the dirty, filthy smut. And then one realizes, here the Buddha brings in the formula for, at least part of the formula of Petita Samuppada, dependent origination. He continues that this man who regains his sight, he sees that with this clinging to the five aggregates as conditioned, there is becoming. It is the process of repeated existence is, you say, sustained or perpetuated by this clinging to the five aggregates. When one passes away from one form of existence, as long as there is a clinging attachment to this five aggregates, that clinging sets in motion again the process of re-becoming Bhava, so that rebirth will occur. It maintains the cycle of rebirth. And once the process of becoming starts, then there is birth, the arising of the five aggregates in some new existence. And when there is birth, then there will be growth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. That is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. So at this point, the Buddha has introduced what's called technically Anuloma to teach us That is dependent origination in the forward order, in the order of causing cycle, the cycle of existence. Dependent origination is the sequence of conditions that maintains the forward movement of the cycle of existence. And now, Magandhya, apparently by hearing even this much of the teaching, his faith has become very, very strongly rooted. And he's even more intent on hearing the full Dharma right to the point of its culmination. So now he says to the Buddha, I have confidence in Master Gautama thus, that Master Gotama is capable of teaching me the Dhamma in such a way that I might rise up from the seat cured of my illness, cured of my blindness. It seems he thinks that if he gets a further teaching of the Dhamma, he might even achieve the first stage of enlightenment, the stage of stream entry, by listening to it. In any way, the Buddha, or at least that's the way I would interpret it, but it might just mean that he has a deeper and clearer understanding. And now the Buddha is now going to give him more practical instruction as to what he has to do to cure his blindness. And he begins by saying, first, you have to associate with the superior men, the Sapurisa, the wise, noble individuals. 
others. You have to find Kalyana Mitra, spiritual firmness. When you associate with true men, <coughs> with spiritual friends, then you will hear the true Dhamma. And when you hear the true Dhamma, then you will have the opportunity to practice in accordance with the true Dhamma. And when you practice in accordance with the true Dhamma, then you will know and see for yourself thus. These are diseases. When the Buddha uses the word these here, he's referring to the five aggregates. These are diseases. These are tumors or boils. These are dark. But here, when the Buddha uses the word here, he's referring to the real Nibbana. Here, these diseases, tumors, and darks cease without remainder. And with the cessation of clinging, now comes the reverse order of dependent arising, the sequence of cessation. That is, when you see the true nature of the five aggregates as being diseases, tumors, and darts, and then when you see Nibbana as being that reality which is without the five aggregates, where there is no more form, feeling, perception, formation, or consciousness. When you see this, then your clinging to the five aggregates will cease. With the cessation of clinging, then the process of becoming will cease. You will no longer be building up, creating, constructing the rounds of existence for the future. And with the cessation of this process of becoming, birth, with the cessation of birth, aging, and death seed. With the cessation of birth, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair seed. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. And so now the Buddha has completely brought Magandhya to a complete understanding of the Dhamma. <coughs> and by this whole exposition, he's, at least he's given him the incentive to dig up this bhavatamha, the craving for becoming, the craving <coughs> for continued existence, which can thrive only through abhijja, through ignorance, of the true nature of the five aggregates. When the nature of the five aggregates is correctly known, then that craving for the five aggregates is abandoned. With the abandoning of the craving for the five aggregates, the clinging ceases, and everything else ceases right up to the end of this whole mass of suffering. And so now, at the end of the discourse, then Magandhya says, Magnificent Master Gautama, Magnificent Master Gautama, and he goes for refuge to the Triple Gems. And not only does he go for refuge, but then he says that he wants to be admitted into the order to become a bhikkhu. Then the Buddha says, this is a stock passage, that ordinarily, if somebody has been a member of another sect, he has to wait on probation. He can't be ordained immediately, but he has to wait on probation for four months because they have to examine the monks have to examine him and test him to make sure that he's really sincere and determined in his change of allegiance. Because it would be embarrassing for the Sangha if somebody comes over to convert from another sect to become a Buddhist monk, 
then after a few days he decides he wants to go back to the other side. And so the Buddha says you have to remain on probation for four months and then if the monks are pleased with you, they will give you the ordination. But the Buddha says, <coughs> I myself can make some exceptions in individual cases. But Magandhya says, now he's so convinced of the truth of the Dhamma, he says that if those who belong to other sects normally have to wait on probation for four months, then I'm ready to wait on probation for four years. <laughs> and if the monks are satisfied with me, then let them ordain me. But the Buddha says to Magandhya, <coughs> he says, since I'm able to make exceptions myself, because I know the minds of others, I will arrange for your ordination. And so Magandhya became ordained and entered the Bhikkhu Sangha, and within a short time of intense striving, he achieved Arahatsya. And that is the end of the Sutra. <coughs> okay, if there are any questions, then please feel free to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me? Uh, Someone who wants to die before death actually sets in? I would have to say that Bhavatanha is still operating there because they still want to go on existing. But because the pain has become so overwhelming and unbearable, I would say a Vibhavatana sets in, but it's only a kind of temporary Vibhavatana. It's a desire just to overcome the pain and misery of the present existence. But it's not a true <coughs> cessation or uprooting of the craving of Vibhavatana. They still have that craving for becoming. Yeah, what I would say is that the Sota, the attainment of Sotapati would eliminate the view of the four Vipalasas. But the Vipalasas will still continue to operate at the level of perception and thought. Even though there's another early work in the Sutta Pitaka called the Pati Sambhita Maka, which makes different, it has different pronouncements about which Vipalasas are removed. But I have to say I disagree with it. It says that the Vipalasa of seeing beauty and the unattractive, and uh, it says that the Vipalasa of seeing permanent and the impermanent and self and the selfless is completely removed at all three levels by the spring mentor. I don't see that as acceptable. Because it seems that the even the non-returner, the once-returner, still has the conceit I am. So that seems to be a kind of perception of self or thought of self, even though he doesn't have a view of self. But that's a rather technical, technical thing. It seems more sensible to me to understand that the with stream entry one eliminates all wrong views and so one no longer has any view of permanence, pleasure, self or beauty. But one could still have thinking and perception that is manipulated by these distortions. The view is like a fixed opinion, a judgment, you might say, as opposed to just a spontaneous way of thinking or perceiving. 
Okay, is there any other question? Okay, the next time we will take, I think, suit to number 76.